When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, July 12th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... Farmers are hoping Mississippi can join a national program to assist in local food supply chains. Then we continue our discussion about new state laws. Plus, an author shares the state's history of gender rituals in today's history is lunch. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Department of Agriculture and Commerce is taking questions about a new federal program that will supply grants to Mississippi farmers. During the listening session at the Museum of Agriculture and Commerce in Jackson, farmers were able to ask about the program. It's called Resilient Food Systems and Infrastructure. It's a federally funded initiative by the U.S. Department of Agriculture that aims to strengthen middle-of-the-supply-chain infrastructure. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Jamie Redman, a farmer from Flora who grows an uncommon type of lettuce. He says this program can help farmers like him sell locally, even when supply chains are disrupted. To try and raise more awareness is to move in Mississippi to the point that it can feed itself instead of relying on other states and countries to uh, feed it. I mean, when you pick up your product and see that it came from Washington State, when it was available and grown right here in Mississippi, kind of like, why, why can't I get my product in this in this situation to be consumed? Why has it got to come from Chile or Peru or wherever it's coming from? Why can't Mississippi produce this? And, of course, there are a lot of products that climatically you just can't grow in Mississippi. We understand that. But if it can be grown in Mississippi, consumed in Mississippi, and it's nutritious and fresh, why not get it from Mississippi? So this program that we heard about today, do you think that's going to be able to help small Mississippi farmers like yourself? If it's not too mucked up with compliance and having to... My wife wrote a grant that we got, were able to obtain right before COVID hit, but it going through the grant writing process is it's like it's a whole business within itself when it shouldn't be to get government help from tax dollars that everybody has paid in 
to make it so difficult that you have to go hire somebody to understand it, and you still don't understand it after it's been written, but you turn it in, and if you get the grant, great. But if you didn't, why not? And 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 uh, hopefully this grant, it, and it would be even great, like the commissioner said, if the state could match the grant. I know that Mississippi, the state of, sitting on a pile of cash right now, and I hope they keep it for the rainy day and doesn't get spent for frivolous things. But investing in where your food is coming from, I believe, is a pretty worthwhile investment. And it would be great if the state could follow suit and double this to make it available in an easier manner for all small farmers to take advantage of. Absolutely. So now that the meeting's over, how are you feeling? What did you learn? Are you walking away happy, or do you still have questions? What are you thinking right now? I feel great. No. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad to see that it's getting the attention that it's getting, and uh, I hope that it continues on, and we'll see what comes out in August. And then the other question is, how long does it take after August when the plan comes out for the plan to be implemented? And uh, so we'll see. The event was hosted by the State Agriculture Commissioner, and several panels were also Available where they talked about different perspectives. John Jones is with the Mississippi Minority Farmers Alliance. He says this funding can help many farmers, but he wants to be sure funding is divided fairly. It's important because I work with farmers, small, limited resource farmers. Uh, oftentimes don't have the acreage, don't have the capital that some of the more established farmers have, but they have a desire, they have a love to do the farming. So I wanted to come down and look at what type of opportunities or new opportunities that may be able to help them to expand their operation, to expand their enterprises, even to uh, change their enterprises. So uh, this has been very informative. I think there are some opportunities that we can go back and present to the farmers, at least give them an alternative, uh, give them a choice. And not only that, but also maybe to encourage their family, their sons and daughters to become engaged, more or less as a family-type enterprise. You and the commissioner had an interesting conversation about helping underserved farmers in the meeting today. From what you learned from this program, do you think it's going to be able to help those underserved farmers? I think it will. It may need some tweaking because the funds are coming from the federal government. So they are more or less entrenched. But also I see an opportunity for the state of Mississippi to more or less put some interesting funds in, not necessarily to compete with the federal funds, because federal funds has limitation of what can be done. However, if Mississippi did the same thing, put some dollars in, then it would allow the farmer to be able to expand and do some creative things that maybe the federal funds would not allow them to, to do. My feeling is let's not just rely on the federal government to do these type things. We have the resources, we have the economic base here, so if we can take two or three or four million dollars of parallel or partner with the federal funds, then you're going to get exponential your benefits. So one last question for you. Why is it important that programs like this help those underserved communities, help those farmers like women, like farmers of color that maybe don't get typical funds when it first comes out? Just removing some of the layers, some of the historical barriers that were there. I grew up on a small family farm. 
My mother was an underserved farmer. My father died when I was eight years old. She kept the farm. She sent five of us to college off the farm. So I know what a small farm can do. I know the confidence and the independence that it provides. I tell farmers up there that I work with, when you have a farm, you have nature, you have a park, you know, you have agro-tourism. So let's not just look at it as growing crops or growing livestock, but look at the other thing. You conserve the soil, you improve the soil moisture, you reduce runoff, you reduce silt and erosion getting into the creek. So it become a, you, you become a naturalist because you're saving us, you know, the natural resources, soil, water, plants, animal, and air. You don't have to ask anyone to go uh, hunting on someone else's farm. You have the deer on your, on your farm. So these are the type thing, positive things I think that we need to start expanding, especially when we're talking about uh, small, limited, underserved farmers because historically there has been some barriers. But here and again, you know, uh, uh, my found, uh, the farm that we have down in Jones County has been in our family ever since 1889. So uh, there's a way to keep it. So just have to use strategies. Mississippi is an agriculture state. We need to hear from these people. Do you agree with that statement? Oh, without a doubt, it is an agriculture state. Uh, it's rural. I mean, you know, there's not a large city, <laughs> hardly in Mississippi. But as I was telling the commissioner, we tell ourselves to be an agriculture. Mississippi being an agriculture state. I don't see where the state of Mississippi is really doing much to do for agriculture. Again, they wait for the federal funds to come in and use those. I know I have farmers that want to do high tunnels that will expand their growing season, uh, make uh, allow them to put the tomatoes started growing earlier in the spring and also carry all the way through later in the fall. But those funds for that high tunnel come from the federal government, USDA. I don't see the state of Mississippi having money to partner with the federal funds to do it. Because when the federal funds runs out, then they have to wait till another round of funds come in, and it's competitive. So, yeah, Mississippi is an agricultural state, but I want Mississippi to do more to enhance agriculture. John Jones is with the Mississippi Minority Farmers Alliance. Ahead, more on the state laws that take effect this month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Hundreds of new state laws went into effect the 1st of July. They cover topics ranging from new budgets, public safety, health care, and censorship. In part two of our conversation with MPB's Kobe Vance, we talk about the bills signed into law this year. He says one of the most significant topics of the legislative session was education. There was a big push this year to fully fund the Mississippi Adequate Education Program. But that fell through. Uh, The Senate was all for it, but the House uh, refused to let that go through. From the House's perspective, uh, Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, who is not returning next year, he feels Mississippi needs to revise the entire formula for how MAEP is conducted. That said, there were some other changes. Uh, We did see one bill, uh, Senate Bill 2079, that allows some school employees to carry firearms. They could be given a monthly stipend for 100 to $500, so there is some incentive there for teachers. As far as stipulations go, 
They must have a firearm license. They must complete an instructional training through Law Enforcement Training Academy. Now, that would include the instructional course that's standard, plus a criminal background check, psychological screening, a shooting proficiency test, and they have to get that certified every year. And then lastly, they have to be CPR and first aid certified. There have been some concerns that you know, maybe teachers shouldn't have A, a firearm in the classroom, or B, the responsibility to have to take on a school shooter or some other threat in a classroom. Conservative lawmakers thought that this was the best way to protect children. And then we also saw another bill is actually looking at increasing funding is uh, House Bill 817. Is it expands funding for early learning collaboratives. Those are the nationally acclaimed pre-K education. Uh, it's just really affordable for parents, and it has shot reading scores up in Mississippi across the board, and they've provided more funding. One thing that has been very controversial has been HB 1020, which is the bill signed into law that expands the territory for Capitol Police and also creates a separate court. I really don't like the word inferior because that doesn't really tell me what the court is responsible for. But I know that the chief justice of the state Supreme Court will appoint four judges to Hines County Circuit Court. So a little bit of background on this before we dive too deep into it. During the pandemic, Jackson was highlighted to have a severe backlog of court cases. And this is in criminal court. Uh, this is across the board. And what that was doing was basically every judge was slam-packed in their schedules, and they weren't able to get through everything. The state stepped in and offered the city temporary judges to just get through. What House Bill 1020 did was it changed the language around it but made it a temporary inferior court. And now what inferior means is it's basically a sub-district of the Hines County judicial system. So it's a subset of non-elected judges. The other part of this bill is also the expansion of the CCID. That's the Capital Complex Improvement District. This is the region that basically encompasses the state capitol and several state-owned buildings in the downtown Jackson area. What this has been used for in the past has been for Capitol Police and their jurisdiction. They were able to patrol these areas and make sure that it was safe for state and government business. Last year, they expanded the jurisdiction slightly to make it to where Capitol Police could be more involved in helping Jackson address its crime problem because the city of Jackson has a very high homicide rate right now. This bill expanded that jurisdiction and power even more. The difference between both of these things, because the city did support having additional judicial help, the city um, wasn't necessarily against having Capitol Police help with their enforcement of crimes in the city, uh, but this is going beyond what the city had agreed to, and they were not allowed to be in consulting about this final law and what it did. This law is in litigation, and at issue is the fact that uh, the judges are not elected, that they are appointed, and there's a concern that there is a state heavy-handedness taking place with this. Yeah. Currently, that litigation is still in court. Um, we have one case in the state court system, and we have one case in a federal court system. And so as it goes... 
the federal court is looking into if this law violates federal law, um, and the state court is looking to determine if it violates the state law. Okay, pornography, you have yes. to prove you are at least 18. Is this even workable? It's tricky. As of this point, it's fair to say that the largest website that hosts adult content is outright preventing Mississippians from logging into their site. They'll track your geographic location. That's available to a bunch of websites. That's not just them. You're located in Mississippi, and they'll say, sorry, we are not even going to try to comply with this law. Our, our best option is just to block the entire state. I guess they think it's too onerous. Uh, yeah, it's that. They also have concerns that it is a big security risk. You're, you're having to put in your driver's license information or your state ID. And if they take that on, what if they get attacked? Then suddenly your data could be at risk. It seems in this case that the largest provider of this content online has said, we're just not even going to worry about it. So blocking Mississippi. Other websites, however, um, that don't take these laws as serious and arguably uh, could be more hands-off in terms of regulating their content because they don't care as much about these laws. They're just not complying with Mississippi's law in general. So you can still access the content. And so they, they're at risk of facing litigation from the attorney general's office. That was MPB's Kobe Vance. Coming up, a book about gender rituals in the South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From children's education to gripping drama, documentaries to comedy, MPB Television brings the world to Mississippi. With local stories, cooking, health, and music, MPB Television takes Mississippi to the world. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Southern beauty, race, ritual, and memory in the modern South. That's the title of a book by author Elizabeth Brownwin Brown. It examines a trio of popular gender rituals, sorority rush, beauty pageants, and the Natchez Pilgrimage Confederate pageant. She's sharing her research today at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums at noon. Brown talks with our Michael Guidry about how these rites of passage perpetuate Old South ideas of beauty. They are performed commemorations or embodied commemoration, uh, and that they do some of the same nostalgic commemorative work that we see in monuments and statues and flags, uh, but have really failed to draw scrutiny. People, uh, you know, they're ephemeral, they're in motion, they are cyclical, often an annual ritual, and it's often tied to uh, young women's coming-of-age rights uh, and to social status. So when they're tied to social status and they're annual there's a lot of incentive for young women to uh, perform a specific rendition of white Southern femininity, and they understand those expectations, and this is where it gets played out. You said one of those kind of rituals are, is sorority rush. You notably appeared on HBO Max's documentary, Bama Rush, which looks at Rush at the University of Alabama. The assumption is that this is obviously prevalent in the South, 
but how much does it extend beyond the South? And are there degrees of difference between sorority rush and, you know, former Confederate states and sorority rush outside of the outside of the region? Certainly sorority rush takes place nationwide. But in the southern schools, they have really held on to what they call a frilly rush. And part of the reason is that there's more going on than uh, selecting a new class of actives. This is tied up with reiterating and reaffirming certain white southern understandings of the South itself. This is where it takes place and where it gets reinscribed. Uh, the other thing is that historically, part of at the mid-century, uh, mid-20th century in the American South on college campuses, there was this celebration of segregation. And this was where these performances and these productions really reiterated, you know, it was showing who you are and who you are not. And uh, young women were part and parcel of this. Many people think that it was uh, strictly young men who uh, had blackface elements to their productions, but that is not the case. Um, One thing that comes up with, you know, Greek life and the Greek bid process is this concept of legacy. And it just comes to mind because of the conversation we just had about um, we, we've had nationally and regionally uh, about the recent Supreme Court decision that ended affirmative action. And the question becomes, well, what about legacy admissions? And that that, that concept of legacy is prevalent when it comes to Greek life. Um, what kind of parallels exist there when we talk about this concept of legacy? Well, lineage and legacy are crucial to all of the productions that I study. Uh, You see them certainly in Sorority Rush, where any chapter on the larger school campuses could fill each class with legacies if they wanted to. Lineage is also central to the notion of the Confederate pageant of the Natchez pilgrimage, uh, which essentially functions as a debutante ball. Um, Even in beauty pageants, you see second-generation or third-generation pageant contenders. So um, the question becomes, who's excluded? Because all of these are exclusionary popular productions, in essence. Uh, You choose uh, a new sorority uh, class through the process of exclusion. And, uh, you know, if you are... Uh, an African-American potential new member, uh, it's difficult for you to have a legacy. It's it's almost impossible. So right there, there is a a differential. When we talk about how we deal with white supremacy, how we deal with those connections to the Confederacy, we often focus a lot on a lot on iconography. I think what gets overlooked and I think what your, your book and your work do is there are other systems uh, that really exists in community um, that that still perpetuate these things. And my, my curiosity is what I guess what what draws you to looking at these systems rather than the I think the more obvious ones um, like icons. Yeah, well, I argue that the Southern beauty is the biggest Southern symbol around. The most successful, I also I should add, because we still have these Southern beauty performances that uh, reiterate 
this sort of feeling of, of white nostalgia for an earlier South. And it's young white women that are, um, they're the ones doing the performing. Um, and there are social rewards that they receive for doing this. And yet some young women have started to protest. Some of these groups have started to uh, disband um, voluntarily, realizing that not only is this not a good look, but it's, um, it's offensive. So there's change afoot, but there are still many examples of continuity. Um, and because um, breaking up a, a, a longstanding social tradition is – there's no mandate for it. There's no uh, – nothing illegal about it. will be more difficult to change. It has to come from the young women themselves. Well, Jackson native Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd, author of Southern Beauty, Race, Ritual, and Memory in the Modern South, presenting at the Department of Archives and History's History is Lunch. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. We have a full morning of Mississippi programming. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 830 for the next edition of Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.